Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath here at Keller and Heckman, and I'm grateful to all of you for participating in what uh, may be somewhere around the 40th or so episode of the OSHA 3030. Uh, we have a great topic today involving OSHA's uh, ability to get a search warrant for conducting inspections and a challenge to their one of their warrants. And for those of you just tuning in for the first time to the OSHA 3030, this is a podcast and webinar that we conduct uh, every 30 days uh, in about 30 minutes on what we think are some of the most impactful developments in OSHA law that had occurred in the recent uh, period before the program. So with that said, uh, if you're tuning in, this is a webinar for today's purposes and is accessible uh, on the web by slides, and the audio is available uh, by telephone using this dial-in number. I'll also say this. All of our prior OSHA's 3030 are posted to our website, which is khlaw.com, and they are also available as a podcast, so that you can take it on the go with you. The, the sound portion is available as a podcast. But on our website, we put the slides and the sound as a moving uh, slideshow uh, with audio uh, available at khlaw.com. The program is free, complimentary to you. The only thing we ask in exchange is that when you get the invitations in your email inbox, uh, please forward on your invitations to the OSHA 3030 to your colleagues at your Office of In-House Counsel or your safety and health professionals within your company and at companies where your colleagues are working. Uh, down the street, maybe. So thank you for that. That is the lifeblood of the program that keeps it going from program to program. With that said, as I've said before, I'm Monish Rath here at Keller and Heckman. More information about me can also be found on the website for those of you who don't know me yet. And I'm joined today by my partner and friend, Larry Halpern. Larry uh, is an OSHA attorney and one of the deans of, of OSHA law anywhere in the country who's been practicing this area of law since uh, virtually the area of law began for several decades now. Larry, thank you very much for joining us and for uh, participating and contributing to this program. Uh, and, in fact, this was a topic that you had brought to my attention, so thank you for that as well. Thank, thank you, you Maj. Pleasure to be here today. Uh, so with that said, Larry, we've got a great topic, uh, the Marjack case, and it involves uh, a motion to quash uh, an inspection that uh, that OSHA had issued to uh, – uh, motion to quash a warrant that OSHA had issued – to conduct an inspection. Uh, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to start with a background uh, conversation about OSHA's right to physically inspect and the bases for a warrant to be granted, and uh, then we're going to get into this summary of this case, Marjack, uh, and to talk about OSHA's arguments in defense of its warrant in that case, uh, as well as a couple of other cases that have been going on unrelated to Marjack, but also relating generally to the topic of OSHA and its uh, seeking out or issuance of a warrant to search. And finally, as we always do, we will wrap up with a, a discussion of what practical steps employers can take. So with that said, let's, let's just real quickly take a quick look at OSHA's rights to conduct a search and, if necessary, what arguments it needs to make to obtain a warrant from a court. With that said, the agency has statutorily 
been granted by Congress the right to conduct an inspection. Uh, but to the extent that it needs to obtain one, it would have to obtain a warrant from a court that authorizes it to physically enter and inspect the premises. Uh, so, but just clarify yeah, right. that. So OSHA has the authority in terms of the use of federal funds to conduct an inspection. However, the Barlow's case has basically said that with respect to OSHA inspections, we're not talking about an inspection of a pervasively regulated industry, and therefore the industries that would be subject to an inspection haven't waived their Fourth Amendment rights to be free from unreasonable government searches, and therefore, if an employer chooses to, they can refuse to allow entry by an OSHA inspector and require an OSHA inspector to get a warrant. Um, in a general scenario, the I think the general practice has been to allow inspections without warrants because if the agency does get a warrant, there's a potential that the warrant could allow the inspector to do far more than the inspector would have been able to do in a scenario where there was no warrant and the employee's representative simply allowed the inspection to continue on some controlled basis. Go ahead. So, so Larry, what you're saying is that employers have historically just made a calculation on their own that the efficient and practical resort is to allow a compliance safety and health officer just to come on in and conduct his inspections. Right, unless there's some special circumstance that would say something is unreasonable, something's unreasonably burdensome, overreaching, or in some sense punitive, those kind of scenarios. So let's be clear. You, you, you said some really important stuff here about the basic statement of law, and I want to, I want to clarify that for our, our participants. If uh, the, the basic standard... Uh, rule for obtaining a warrant is if there's a valid public interest that justifies an agent or an inspector entering the premises, then the court will uh, issue a warrant on the basis of that probable cause. The valid public interest uh, is itself the, pub the probable cause for uh, issuing a warrant. However, in the administrative search where there isn't this pervasive public interest, uh, there's a, and, and that, that point, by the way, comes from uh, a landmark case, West Point Pepperel. Uh, but, but the question of whether or not there's a opportunity to obtain a warrant in the absence of that more general valid public interest comes down to uh, one of two bases. And one of them is if the OSHA compliance safety and health officer can present specific evidence of a likely violation, and they can go to a court and say, look, this is the evidence we have that leads us to believe that there's the likelihood of an OSHA violation. The court would issue a warrant. That's the plain English statement. Alternatively, because this is an administrative warrant and not a criminal warrant, there's an additional lower standard opportunity for OSHA to get a warrant, and that is if there is an administrative standard or plan that is neutral on its face and neutrally applied. That comes from the case you're describing, which is Marshall versus Barlow's, a Supreme Court case from 1978 that is considered the headwater case in many ways on the subject we're discussing today. Right. Go ahead. So Barlow's basically says you don't have to present, if you're the OSHA uh, inspector or compliance safety and health officer, you don't have to provide specific evidence of a likely violation. You can come up with a neutral administrative plan that is, uniformly or neutrally applied. 
And that is the starting point for our discussion today. That's Barlow's. With that said, giving you some background to this case that we're going to discuss today, the Marjack case, uh, OSHA has a regional emphasis uh, program uh, here on the slides, we'll call it an REP. The regional emphasis program is industry specific to the poultry industry, and it was for the southeast region uh, in which Marjack was located. And in that regional emphasis program, OSHA had identified 16 hazards that it had observed to be common or uh, high frequency hazards in the poultry industry. And it, the regional emphasis program called for whenever there was a complaint or other basis to identify the likelihood of a violation that fit one of those 16 hazards, OSHA's own internal document, this regional emphasis program, would dictate that OSHA would then expand its inspection of that premises to inspect for the presence of any of those other 16 hazards. It did set aside for itself, OSHA did set aside for itself in its regional emphasis program, the possibility that multiple poultry industry establishments came up with a complaint or an injury or illness that caused it to give a inspection on a single issue, and then the regional emphasis program would get kicked in, and they'd have to do more comprehensive inspections than they had the resources to actually conduct. And so it set aside a, a escape hatch, if you will, by saying, look, we don't have to do this in every case if the commitment of significant resources is something we're not capable of at that time. So we'll make a determination as to whether we can expand a specific inspection to a, a complete regional emphasis program inspection on all 16 issues in every single case or in itemized specific cases. Uh, typically, they believed at the time they published this document that they could maybe do about one or one or two a year, uh, given the resources that they had at the time. So that's the regional emphasis program that provides the backdrop. Now, let's talk about the case we wanted to talk about here in the South uh, East region. In, in the case comes up in the Northern District of Georgia, and the case is uh, the United States versus Mar Jack Poultry Incorporated. And in that case, an employee at Mar Jack Poultry Incorporated in and in its facility in Georgia uh, was injured, suffered first, second, and third degree burns, and was immediately sent to, for hospitalization for treatment of those burns. Uh, under OSHA's current self-reporting rule, uh, Marjack reported this incident to its area office uh, of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And OSHA sent out uh, a compliance safety and health investigator and conducted an investigation on the basis of that self-reported uh, fatality or catastrophe here. This was a catastrophe. Uh, so because Marjack fits the description of uh, the regional emphasis program and the hazard associated was described as one of the 16 hazards identified in the regional emphasis program, OSHA announced that it was, had, had selected Marjack as the facility that it had the resources to expand this investigation on the basis of this single self-reported catastrophe, it wanted to expand it to an inspection of all 16 hazards identified in the regional emphasis program. Mm -hmm. 
Marjack said you can't come in for that purpose. You can come in and inspect on the basis of the single hazard that we have um, sent somebody to the hospital for. OSHA sought a warrant, and Marjack filed with the court a motion to quash the warrant. And it argued that there was insufficient probable cause on the basis of this one incident to expand the inspection to uh, basically a programmed inspection wall-to-wall for searching for evidence of violations of any of those 16 hazards identified in the regional emphasis program. Okay, so let's talk about this general process. As a rule, an employer has refused to allow an entry the way OSHA would prefer to do it. So OSHA would then go into court. It's called an ex parte basis where the other side is not actually notified. The employer is not notified that OSHA is going to get a warrant. So OSHA goes into court gets a warrant, the warrant's issued, then OSHA proceeds to serve it, or possibly the employer is anticipating it, so the employer files an action to quash the warrant. And that's, I believe that's the way it worked in this case. If you don't move to quash the warrant, the alternative is to allow the inspection to proceed under the objection that you believe the, val- the warrant is invalid, and you provide OSHA with a notification to that effect. And then in theory, in theory, you have the opportunity to later quash the warrant and all the evidence that was obtained. The problem with that approach is by the time you go through the court proceeding to quash the warrant and suppress all the evidence, the inspection's completed, and then the court says um, that particular challenge is moot, and you have to go to the review commission after the citations are issued and then try to suppress the evidence there on the basis the warrant was invalid issued and then you're fighting an uphill battle and in addition all the evidence is brought forward and you've got yourself going through an expanded inspection. The good news is you're in federal court for these actions or if it's a state planned state you would be in a state court uh, challenging the subject that's tested in the motion to quash and I say good news because uh, as you and I know, we've practiced in almost all the state plan states and federal uh, um, re, re, uh, federal states as well. Uh, the bulk of your citation contest activity happens before an administrative law judge and it works its way up to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission before you ever get a crack at what I'd call an Article Three court or a, a federal court. Mm-hmm. And here on the questions of motions to quash, they go straight to uh, Article Three court or federal court because uh, that's where the the warrant was sought or the the OSHA seeks to obtain a warrant from either a state court or a federal court and that's where you get to test out the sufficiency of their uh, allegations supporting the the justification for a warrant. So with that said, uh, in defense of its uh, seeking out a warrant, OSHA said, look, our regional emphasis program is an appropriate administrative plan that's neutral on its face. And one of the reasons is we said that whenever there is a uh, complaint arising out of the poultry industry, we would expand to the following 16 hazards. The 16 hazards were based on our experience with hazards that commonly arise in the poultry industry. So the selection process is uniform, and the our experience with the poultry industry uh, is a, a history of poultry industry hazards, or uh, they come from other objective data, and that's that's a neutral 
uh, selection process as well. Uh, the other argument that OSHA made was, look, the decision that we make at the area director level as to whether or not we take a complaint or a self-report of a catastrophe or fatality that's in the poultry industry and decide that we're going to make that the one that we have resources to expand to a full programmed inspection, or we decide not to based on resources, that's just a resources question. That doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the selection process is neutral. The, even if resources were a factor, that's a neutral factor in and of itself. Finally, OSHA argued, you know, one of the things that we saw that when we did get uh, to come in and take a look at the at Marjack establishment based on the catastrophe self-report was the OSHA 300s. And the OSHA 300 data is sufficient evidence to give rise to the idea that there's probable cause of the likelihood of other OSHA citations or OSHA violations because the OSHA 300 lists several other injuries or illnesses. And so these are the arguments OSHA made to justify not only the probable cause uh, that would be sufficient to issue a warrant, but also the neutrality of its administrative plan, the regional emphasis program. With that said, the court uh, issued a decision which I think is extremely important, and this is a federal district court, the Northern District of Georgia, U.S. District Court, and it said, look, the regional emphasis program uh, may be neutral in the sense that uh, it was, first of all, drafted before Marjack was selected, and second of all, it does identify the poultry industry uh, and no specific establishments, but you did reserve to yourself the right to select within that, that framework which establishments would be selected for expansion from an unprogrammed inspection to a programmed inspection uh, on the basis of your resources. And in testimony, the area director said he had full discretion on that. Uh, that discretion taints the administrative neutrality of the otherwise neutral administrative plan. And so we don't really have a case, the court said, we don't really have a case that's quite like Barlow's had envisioned. Uh, I think that's an important point, Larry, because uh, OSHA pointed out, look, we've, we've had favorable results from district, court, uh, district courts around the country. You're the first to object. The court disagreed and said, well, our case isn't quite like the others uh, that you're citing to because there is this reservation of rights so that the area director can exercise their own discretion. And when you exercise discretion to select a facility or when you decide not to select a facility, uh, creates a risk that, that the caprices of the area director could uh, influence those kinds of decision, decisions. No, I certainly agree with you. I think some of the other programs in the past probably have the same fundamental shortcoming, but in this case, if I were sitting in a judge's position, I'd say, okay, what this area director is basically saying is if I want to go out and get this company, I got the ability to say, yeah, I got the resources and I'm going to go get them. If there's two poultry companies that happen to be in this situation, you say, well, these guys are okay, I want to go get those guys, so I'm going to let these guys off the hook and say I don't have enough resources. And it's not only within the poultry industry, this particular area director has got construction inspections, other program inspections. So the judge is right. Basically, if, if there's any sort of discretion whatsoever, the area director then has the ability to pick and choose who he wants to go after, he or she. And that's 
I think it's appropriate to say that's inappropriate and uh, invalid and basically fails to comply with the idea of a neutral administrative scheme. The other thing that the court said is, look, when you look at the experience of the whole poultry industry, that doesn't give rise to a reasonable suspicion uh, such that it meets the reasonable suspicion requirements for obtaining a warrant either. Uh, the idea that there is a higher likelihood of certain hazards in the poultry industry doesn't inform us about anything about the specific establishment being inspected at Marjack. Marjack also pointed out that an experience rating of 4.3 cases per 100 full-time workers in the, uh, we're talking about record, uh, total recordables in poultry processing was not all that high relative to many other industries. In fact, uh, government workers in that same local area had a, for the same time period, had a, a similar experience rating of total recordables of 5.0 cases per 100 full-time workers. So whatever OSHA thought were high likelihood hazards for poultry, the overall total, total recordable cases for local government workers was in fact higher. Uh, that almost definitively suggests that you can't ex do the opposite of extrapolating. You can't take the overall uh, industry experience and attach it to Marjack and say that's reasonable suspicion that what's going on all across the industry is likely to be going on at Marjack, and that, that wouldn't be reasonable. It would also be interesting to know why OSHA happened to pick that poultry industry in the first place, and there could always be issues about whether there was a union that influenced that decision or whether the particular area had some particular poultry plants that weren't organized. And there are all kinds of other factors that may have been relevant. I don't know. I'm speculating that didn't come out in the case. But I guess for the future, for somebody who's facing this kind of an issue, that's something they need to think about. That's right. Well, and that, and that should lead a judge at the federal district court level or the state court level to be inherently suspicious unless the agency is scrupulous about keeping – uh, and applying a perfectly neutral administrative plan. Uh, we know, Larry, you and I, from other work that we've done in the past, that poultry uh, in companies are oftentimes unpopular at the local level because their facilities tend to be, let's say, maybe not the ideal neighbor uh, in a lot of ways. And it's also safe to say that we've heard comments from the folks at OSHA that they are inherently suspicious of the injury and illness uh, or, or safety and health management practices uh, in the poultry, poultry industry. And so you raise a very good question, why poultry and not other industries that have even higher total recordable, total recordable cases per 100 uh, full-time employees. So, so with that said, I think it's more important for them to be scrupulous. The other argument to, to uh, address, the court said, look, we don't think that the OSHA 300 data uh, it creates a body of evidence about the likelihood of OSHA violations. Um, remember, Larry, and we've talked about this in other of our OSHA 3030 programs, Section 1904 has a record-keeping requirement that requires employers to enter data on their Form 300 without regard to whether or not it arose out of the workplace or out of work, or whether it was an occupational injury or illness in nature. It's essentially a no-fault requirement. And the reason is because OSHA wanted the employer to aggregate as much data as possible, to be as informative as possible, and not to self-select data that was not workplace-related or work-related. 
And so having done that, OSHA now has turned around and said, but we think that entries on the OSHA 300 are indicia of the uh, probity or probability of a violation of an OSHA standard. And the court said, that can't possibly be because you yourself told the employer to enter things without regard to fault. And so there's no probity on the question of a uh, entry of a OSHA 300 data line and the question of whether or not there was a violation of an OSHA standard related to that injury or illness. I would say if you had an overwhelming number of cases, it might tend to go in OSHA's direction. Of a singular type. But when you've got, like you said, some, some number that seems within the realm of what would be expected, and the possibility is that they're due to circumstances beyond the employer's control, there's no reason to attribute that to the fall of the employer and make that the basis for a warrant. So that was, uh, that was the court's holding uh, on that argument, and I think that was a very common-sense approach. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. One thing we should point out is, so the way the court left it, the court said, you've identified four hazards that are covered by the poultry or uh, regional emphasis program. Yes, they were, they were lockout, tagout, the exposure to electrical hazards, PPE, and then the OSHA 300 record-keeping violations. Right. So when you decide whether you want to challenge OSHA in this regard, you need to keep in mind, I mean, I, I praise the company for doing it. It took courage. Um, the court basically said there's four hazards that OSHA can inspect, and if OSHA wants to come back and get a warrant limited to four hazards, the court indicated it would issue it. Uh, so then you have a scenario where you've got lockout tagout, electrical hazards, and PPE, which theoretically are hazards that potentially could justify OSHA doing a wall-to-wall type inspection related to those hazards, but you can see that as a result of this outcome, uh, OSHA is at least on its first shot precluded from addressing the other 12, but there's four of them that potentially could take them throughout the entire site. Uh, in addition to the fact that you look at the OSHA 300 log, in theory you could ask to go see the particular places where those events took place. So it's a win for an employer, but you have to keep in mind what the natural outcome would be and where it might still lead. Yeah, that's right. So the result is that the, the court granted the motion to quash and the warrant uh, failed. And I agree that that is uh, an important win. And I also think that it's important to note that uh, – We've heard that OSHA has stated that it intends to note its appeal. I have not seen that it has noted its appeal yet, uh, and it is within the time frame for noting an appeal. That's not stale yet. Um, one question we had was, uh, well, how will this impact, how will this ruling impact the idea that an employer must publish its OSHA 300 data online and that theoretically OSHA could issue citations or conduct an inspection on the basis of that data? Pretty clearly, OSHA is going to look at the data that's been posted uh, and make determinations on how to uh, allocate its resources for inspections. Uh, this case, I think, makes the common sense observation that that's not sufficient for probable cause. Well, it also makes it clear that it's going to be incredibly complicated for OSHA when it gets 40, let's see, excuse me, 400,000 annual reports from employers how it's going to develop a neutral administrative scheme, which theoretically would allow it to use that data for targeting. Well, that's right, Larry. And another thing that this uh, decision suggests to me 
is that OSHA might scramble to redress all of its regional and national emphasis programs and look at this language and maybe take it out. But I don't know how they would have the resources if they did write it in accordance with this court's decision. They would basically have to say, if there's a, a violation within the regional emphasis program scope, then we'll expand it to a program inspection. That would compel them to conduct more inspections than they clearly have resources for. So I don't think that they're going to be quick to do that. I think that they will be motivated to try and appeal this and make an argument to uh, to the, uh, I think that would be the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Eleventh Circuit. Now, <laughs> us old-timers sometimes forget this point. So, so I think that they'll they'll be compelled to, or else they're all of their regional emphasis programs and national emphasis programs are in jeopardy if they have similar language. Well, you, you raise an interesting point. The question is, will they take out the language that gives them discretion, and then there could be some discovery about whether that's a really a change or that's a superficial change of no significance just designed to sincerely drawn up. Right. And then you get into discovery about how many regional emphasis programs do you have, how likely you end up with particular number of sites that actually have to be inspected, and then can they possibly do that? Right. It'll be interesting if it goes that far. Right. I think more than being a victory uh, on the question of warrants and an employer's rights, uh, rights when challenging them, I think that this is actually uh, more of a question of putting regional emphasis programs in jeopardy. I think that's the bigger impact here, uh, but we'll see as time goes on. There are two other warrant cases that we ought to talk about. Larry, you know, you're, you and I are both very familiar with the NFIB versus Doherty case. This goes to an internal memorandum issued by OSHA uh, that's now referred to as the walk-around rule. It basically says that when OSHA conducts an inspection, it, OSHA has announced for itself the right to bring a third-party outsider along with it, uh, who may, in fact, be a member of a union at a, uh, helping them conduct an inspection of a non-unionized facility. Uh, it could be anybody. Uh, traditionally, the rule has been understood to say that an OSHA inspector can bring either an authorized employee representative with them on the inspection or some specialist in some area of knowledge that is reasonably necessary for fulfilling the purposes of the inspection. Um, what they did in this internal memorandum was change the language reasonably necessary to essentially anyone who could provide some some help. and Which meant basically anybody who could walk through and identify a violation, even if they had no knowledge whatsoever of a plant or anything, but somebody inside the plant sent them a complaint, and they brought the complaint in and then walked to this spot like if it was a map and said, oh, here's something, and, and that would theoretically contribute to an inspection. Yeah, and that person, that's right, Larry. That person might not contribute anything more than the compliance, safety, and health officer already possessed in terms of his own skills or knowledge. Uh, but the fact that they could be from the union, maybe the real reason they were there was to uh, help organize an otherwise un non-unionized facility. So the NFIB filed a suit on behalf of its members, one in particular in Texas who's actually faced this circumstance, and uh, that case is currently pending. Uh, OSHA if I recollect, filed its filed motion to dismiss. Two days ago, right. Yeah, maybe last week. Uh, was it two days ago? Two days ago. And, uh, and that's still pending. Uh, Nissan North America is another case that came up where OSHA wanted to bring employees of Nissan along. Remember, I'm going to go back one slide. It has historically been accepted 
that an authorized employee representative could accompany the OSHA inspector. Here, they just wanted to bring three members of an internal committee called the Workers' Organizing Committee uh, with them. And Nissan said, well, those aren't authorized employee representatives, and they, they don't contribute any specialized knowledge. So we object to their being able to accompany you on this inspection. Ultimately, Nissan withdrew its objection, and the parties settled, OSHA and Nissan, and the settlement called for uh, three, uh, those three employees to be placed on a safety committee, to be given training on safety issues, and then they'd be permitted to accompany the OSHA inspector. Uh, here, Nissan's objection was essentially uh, driving at the heart of what is an, quote, authorized representative of the employees. Uh, I think that there's that, that is a term that the statute never defined. When they went to interpreting regulations, they never defined it. Uh, I would have interpreted it to mean some duly authorized representative that was certified, uh, recognized by the employer, or certified through a National Labor Relations Board-held election, and thus only in the context of a unionized facility who is the duly authorized employee representative for that bargaining unit. But it's not necessarily so, since the statutory language says an authorized representative of the employees, and it doesn't clarify who the authorizing party or parties are. Uh, Larry, you and I have talked about this. There is some language in the congressional record that a couple of senators had said, look, we think that this is a, an expression that needs to be defined, but we ask OSHA to define it through the regulatory process. Their internal memorandum, this walk-around rule, is not the regulatory process. I think those senators were referring to standard notice and comment rulemaking pursuant to the Administrative Procedures Act. An internal memorandum uh, is not the regulatory process. Would you agree, Larry? Right. So OSHA repeated the statutory language, which left it ambiguous, and now they've interpreted it to their liking. And, of course, that's going to be subject to a reinterpretation by a different administration. And I would expect a different interpretation to be developed, that remains to be seen. So going back one slide, we think that the NFIB case is an excellent opportunity for the courts to provide the agency with some instruction. Uh, but you're right, it is also a possibility, this being an internal memorandum, that the new uh, Assistant Secretary for OSHA may decide to just withdraw that memorandum. That's always a possibility. Right. So this is a regulation, not a standard. Therefore, under the mortgage banker's principle, the court could simply defer to the agency. And then, of course, when a new administration comes in, the court could be deferring to a totally different reversed interpretation of this particular rule. We're going a little bit over time, so let's finish up, as we always do, with practical discussions about what employers should do in light of the Marjack case. I think the first thing to do, employers need to, when presented with a compliance safety and health officer who wants to physically inspect, I think the first thing employers have to do is ask, what is the basis of the inspection? Is this a complaint-based inspection? Is it an inspection on the heels of a self-reported catastrophe or fatality? Is it a uh, random programmed inspection? Is it pursuant to something that the compliance officer observed while driving by, what we call the plain view doctrine? 
Is it, uh, what are some other options? I guess a national emphasis program or a regional emphasis program or referral from another agency? Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are all possibilities. But that said, you've got to make your decision on how to contain the inspection within the confines of that type of inspection or whether or not you want to permit them to just expand it and walk around all they like. If you decide that you need to contain them, either the number of people they bring, third parties, outsiders, union reps, or where they get to go, you may require them to get a warrant if they want to expand beyond your permission to enter the premise. So your permission to enter the premise may be limited permission and should be expressly stated as such. We give you permission to enter the premise for the limited and specific purposes related to the stated need to conduct this investigation. If you're you received a complaint about an electrical uh, hazard, you can go look at that electrical outlet or that electrical conduit and go take a look at it, and and then you can walk right back out. Uh, If you wanted to do anything more than that, you'd need to go get a warrant. Then you need to make a decision. I think this being a highly legal uh, decision to make, probably best to do it with your in-house counsel and with your OSHA counsel as part of the dialogue as to whether or not you want to move to quash that warrant or object to the warrant, Uh, and what are the arguments that you're going to make. And I would note that the arguments to be made either in favor of a warrant or to quash the warrants are not just centered around the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, this idea of probable cause. They also go to OSHA's statutory rights to inspect and what the confines or limited boundaries of the statutory right to inspect are under what I think is Section 8 of the Act, and the other statutory limits involved, like the National Labor Relations Act, which is the basis of the Nissan challenge, not the NFIB challenge. And finally, whether or not there's a neutral administrative plan in place by OSHA, uh, as was contemplated in the 1978 Supreme Court decision, Barlow's. And so so these are, I think, really important decisions that need to be made. And frankly, Larry, I think they need to be made very, very quickly on the day that you got notice of the inspection. You've got to make a lot of uh, important decisions. I think it's also important to note that a lot of employers fail to even ask what type of inspection they're faced with. I know that when we get calls from clients and they say that OSHA is conducting an inspection and we ask them what type or what prompted it, uh, oftentimes the client doesn't know, and that's merely out of an omission of asking that critical question of a compliance officer. Why are you here? what brought you here, and let's take a look at whatever documents you have authorizing this inspection. The prepared employer should have a conversation with counsel long before OSHA ever gets there and and lay out a sort of a a path forward based on the nature of what's expected in terms of the inspection preparation, who's going to be involved, whether to get a warrant, whether not to get a warrant, depending on the nature of what's involved, including whether it's a complaint or something else. Are you talking about preparing in an anticipation of an expected inspection, or are you talking about general preparatory steps that all organizations should go through to have a plan in place in case someday one inspection might happen? Oh, I'm I'm talking about a plan in place long in advance. It's too hard normally to get something in place adequately coordinated and managed if you haven't thought about it until the incident occurs and you're waiting for the inspector to come in the door. And that's better than nothing, but that's really way late as to where you should be in terms of planning and managing inspections. Well, I think that's right, and we do a lot of training, you and I, on what to do to plan for the possibility of an OSHA inspection, who should be the personnel that receive that training and are ready to go, 
and those people what training that they should have and, and what their plan is going to be. So I think those are all important points uh, for employers to consider in general well before any of this happens to them. Uh, with that said, thank you all very much for participating in this OSHA 3030. Larry Halperin from Keller & Heckman, thank you very much for joining me on this OSHA 3030. Our next OSHA 3030, December 7th, 2016, feels like it's going to be right around the corner. That's a Wednesday, as we always do, and that's at 1 p.m., uh, as always. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, this particular OSHA 3030 will be available as a podcast within the next two days and will be up on our website, www.khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, also within the next couple of days. Uh, so if any of your colleagues have missed this program, they can either check it out as a reprised web uh, webinar on their desktop at khlaw.com slash 3030, uh, OSHA3030, or as a podcast that they can take on the go with them uh, and listen to on, in the car or on their morning run. Thank you all for participating. When you get your next invitation, uh, please forward it on to other folks that might be interested in it. On behalf of Larry Halpern, the rest of Keller and Heckman, and myself, thank you, and until next time, stay safe.